going to sit three weeks in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We're going to be in this one story. It has three characters, three key characters to it. Uh, historically, uh, even if you're here today and you would, you would say, I am, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you didn't grow up in church, uh, you probably know about the story of the prodigal son. I really believe, and I stand with Henry Nouwen uh, in this, I, I believe that this story historically has been misnamed. That it should not just be called the story of a prodigal son, it should really be called a dad and two lost sons. But would you just follow along with me in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, underline this statement, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Underline this phrase, verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and they're doing the wobble, Cupid shuffle. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, Father, may the seed of your word fall on good ground. May it take root, bear much fruit, save someone's soul today, bring someone back to repentance. Give me clarity, passion, power. It is in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen and amen. 
It was a venerable Mark Twain who once said that youth is a gift wasted on the young. Youth is a gift wasted on the young. Never was this, was this more seen than in the life of the great painter Rembrandt. If you've ever read anything about Rembrandt, you, um, you understand that, that for all of his greatness, he would even say himself, he, he squandered his youthful years. There's a famous painting that Rembrandt uh, painted. It's somewhat autobiographical. Many uh, uh, art historians say that this painting was actually of himself, um, in which he is depicted as being in a brothel. It's a young Rembrandt. He's raising a glass of alcohol. Behind him is a woman of the night. Both are staring outwardly with this sensual look on their face. And it doesn't take a gift of interpretation to figure out what they're insinuating here. Rembrandt, by his own admission, squandered his youthful years chasing women. When he wasn't chasing women, he was chasing money. Rembrandt, when it came to money, he made a lot, spent a lot, and lost a lot. In fact, embarrassingly enough, he, he actually had to file for bankruptcy and, and he was actually at the auction watching them auction off all his worldly possessions. And then it happened. There's a change that took place in his heart and life. We don't know all the X's and O's uh, behind the changes, but I, I want to show you this image here. Put it up on the screen. This is one of his most famous paintings. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Uh, lighting isn't the best on it here. Um, we'll adjust the image in the weeks to come, but, but in the background there, standing is, is the elder brother. He's got this scowl on his face. He's not celebrating this elder brother. We'll talk about him in, in a couple of weeks here. You can tell that the elder brother is, is not really happy with this scene of a father embracing a, a wayward, now returned home son. Sitting down, uh, many of our historians tell us, is a tax collector. In fact, if you looked at uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, uh, Luke actually gives us the reason why this story is written. These uh, religious leaders come to Jesus, and, and they're very upset that Jesus is fraternizing and spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus in Luke 15, in response to their accusation on him, pretty much says, you're exactly right. Now, here's why I hang out with sinners and tax collectors. And he tells these three stories. One of, uh, of a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. One uh, wanders away from the fold. He leaves the other 99, finds the one, brings them back. Um, and there's a great celebration that takes place. He then tells a story of a woman who's lost a coin and she, she's flipping up her living room to use modern day vernacular. And she's, um, she's looking for this coin. She finally founds it and there, finds it and there's a celebration. And then our story, the last of the three, it kind of reaches a crescendo where Jesus again answers the question, here's why I'm hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Well, in that painting, if you could put that image back up, the person seated is a tax collector, and there is the father 
embracing his wayward son. Again, most art historians tell us that Rembrandt's actually being autobiographical here. He's depicting himself, now he's in older age when he paints this, as that wayward son who's returned home. This is a really important point. In fact, if you don't get this point, you'll miss the whole message today. What Rembrandt is saying in this painting is that the prodigal is not some person down the street around the corner. I'm the prodigal. I'm the prodigal. Again, today we begin a series of messages on Luke 15. My aim this morning as a new pastor here at the church who just began his tenure uh, back in March, my aim this morning is I want to set, I want to solidify into our DNA that what we are about at the end of the day, no matter what message we're talking about, no matter where we are in scripture, we are a church that is built on the foundation of the gospel. So I want to show you, to solidify this, I want us to rest in Luke chapter 15, because Luke chapter 15 is the explicit gospel. I want to spend three weeks in one story showing you the stunning beauty of the gospel. It's breathtaking. But before we can really appreciate the beauty of the gospel, we've got to come to terms with the depravity and ugliness of our sin. It was Henry Nouwen, that great Catholic theologian, who in his wonderful book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, who said that the prodigal lives in all of us. So again, as, I, as we just kind of open up this message and as we just kind of walk through this text this morning, the worst thing you can do is to think about that wayward child of yours. Oh, I wish they were in here. Or, or to think about that coworker of yours. They need to hear this word. In fact, I'm going to get the CD and I'm going to get them this word. Or to think of someone, some distant relative or family member or neighbor who's just out there doing life on their own terms. No, no, no. I don't want you to think about anyone else but you. Because what we're going to discover in these series of sermons is that there are two individuals residing in our lives who are vying for control of our life in competition with God. One is the younger brother prodigal and the other is the narcissistic, self-righteous, prideful individual who thinks that they've dotted all of their theological I's and crossed all their theological T's. So we've got to go to war with both. I want us to fasten our seatbelts here. I want us to walk through it. Well, Pastor Brian, how, how does the prodigal, this young prodigal, how does, he, how does he relate to me? Oh, in three profound ways. Our text opens up with a stunning request. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, I wanted you to underline this phrase, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He wants his inheritance and he wants it right now. Now, we don't get this living in 21st century America. 
we don't get this in our cult, in our culture today. Um, you know, some of us, you know, for the, the few of us who will receive an inheritance, chances are that will come uh, at the end of our parents' lives. Uh, uh, others of us, we just, you know, financially preparing for life without an inheritance. I've actually done funerals uh, where the person didn't even leave enough money to pay for their own funeral. So this idea of an inheritance, uh, especially requesting that while our relatives are still living, it's foreign to us in 21st century America. But this request for a son to go to his father in Jewish culture while his father was still living and to say, give me the share of the inheritance right now. Jesus' audience, their mouth is wide open. Their jaw is on the ground. They are, they are blown away. They are appalled by this. There's a great cultural anthropologist and scholar. His name is Kenneth Bailey. And Kenneth Bailey uh, spent a lot of time researching this request. In fact, he went to many cultures in Africa and other cultures in the Far East. And he says to these cultures, uh, listen, if, 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 if a young man in your culture were to request of his dad while his dad was still living, give me my inheritance now, what would you do? One African culture said, we would beat this boy. <laughs> Kenneth Bailey then says, Why? All of these cultures are agreed. For a child to go to his dad and to ask his dad to give him his inheritance while his dad is still living, it is the child's way of saying, I wish you were dead. So I want you to understand, in cultural context here, what this son is saying is, Dad, give me what's mine now. I wish you were dead. If you were to back me into a corner and you were to say to me, Pastor Brian, what is the essence, the epitome, the epicenter of sin? I would say fundamentally, every time we sin, it is our attempt to function as if God were dead. We all have people in our lives like that who are living, but we treat them as if they were dead. I've got my boys this summer, they, every summer, man, they just, oh, dad's going to give us this reading list, and I can't believe, you know, well, you ain't going to chill up in my house over the summer and just play video games all day long. That's just not going to happen, all right? So you're going to do some reading, you're going to get outside and play a little bit, whatever, whatever. But I give them this reading list, and this summer on their reading list is a wonderful book called The Color of Water. It is uh, written by James McBride, and it's his tribute to his white Jewish mother. And his white Jewish mother marries a black man in the 1940s, and her Jewish family sat Shiva. That is, when her Jewish family found out that she was marrying a black man, they actually held a funeral for her. Still living, treated her as if she were dead. Now, don't get all self-righteous on me and go shame on them. We do that too. We got people in our lives that we pretty much treat as if they were dead. We don't return their calls. In fact, some of us praise God for caller ID. Thank you, Jesus. We don't listen to them. We don't really respond to them. We function even though they're living as if they were dead. This is, this is the essence of sin. Oh, dear friends, don't, don't you just see? Like every time you sin, what you're fundamentally saying is, I hear you, God, but I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live as if you were dead. 
my dad loves to tell the story. Uh, I was about eight years old at the time. I had just gotten my uh, my first watch, and uh, it was summertime. And uh, I said, Dad, I want to go, go down to Big Steve's house to, to play ball. And we love playing baseball at Big Steve's house. You remember actually going going out of your house as a kid and playing with other kids? You guys actually remember that? I mean, it is crazy to think now. I mean, summertime especially, we used to hurry up and do our chores and then like 9, 10 o'clock in the morning hop on our bikes and mama would say, be home, come streetlights, come on, and we would just be gone. Absolutely gone. Well, anyways, you know, we love playing ball over Big Steve's house, man. Baseball, he had this freshly mown uh, backyard, about 80 yards worth of backyard, met with a tall line of reeds. If you hit the tennis ball uh, over that tall line of reeds, it was a home run. We absolutely loved playing uh, ball back then. And I'll never forget, Dad said, be home by 8.30. Well, 8.15 comes along, and you know, the game's getting good. And I'm going... Ain't no way in the world I can just leave right now and come home. But I also knew at eight years old, I just couldn't come home without an excuse. But this was my first watch, and I had already figured out if you pull the stem out, time will stop. So I pulled the stem out, and I had my game plan together. You know, Dad's going to be like, what's up? I'm going to tell him my watch broke, so on and so forth. So, you know, game keeps playing close to 9 o'clock that night. I hear a voice crying in the wilderness. It's my dad interrupting the baseball game. He says, son, did, did you hear me? I, I, I said be home by 8.30. He says, yeah, dad, but my watch ain't broke. And I can, now, I can still look at my watch. The stem still pulled out. So there's no way I could say it was broke. I just pulled the stem out and never put it back in. And me and my dad had a little session that evening. And it, he didn't put me in timeout, let's say. Um, and what my dad was really incensed about was... It was clear what his word said. I just functioned as if he were dead. Friends, we don't fall into sin. Most of our sins aren't sins of ignorance. Don't give this guy a hard time. Every time we sin... We say, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. There's something else about his sin that, that I want us to see. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here is his dad. He, he doesn't argue, doesn't fuss, doesn't fight with him. In fact, next week we'll unpack that some more. He takes the property. Not only does he take his share of the property, here's what you need to understand because it's just him and his brother. If you understand anything about antiquity and Jewish culture, the brother always got a double portion. So because it's just him and his brother, what that means is his brother gets two-thirds and the younger brother gets a third. So the younger brother gets his third of the inheritance. He cashes out. He takes the money. He ventures off into a far country, gets as far away as from his dad as possible. The idea of far country, many scholars tell us, uh, that it's probably a country that is filled with Gentiles, which means this Jew is now ceremonially unclean. Later on, his older brother would accuse his younger brother of squandering his share of the estate on prostitutes. So not only is he ceremonially unclean, but he is morally unclean. And what we understand, the picture that's coming into view is, is this younger brother 
He wants to live life on his own terms. So that here we see not just the nature of sin is living as if my dad is dead. It's not just living as if if my heavenly father is dead. But the nature of sin is also independence. It is wanting to live life on my own terms. This is what sin is about. It's saying, God, I I hear you. I understand what your word has to say. I I understand what your word is. But but we go the way of the prodigal when we walk in independence. This, my friends, is really what sin is all about. When God comes to Adam and Eve and says, look, of every tree of the, of, of, of the garden you can eat of, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that tree. And they go ahead and do it anyway. They walk in independence. This is what got Moses in trouble. Here is God. He comes to Moses and he says, look, I want you to go to my people and I want you to speak to the rock. And what does Moses do? He strikes the rock. Independence. Achan. God says to his people, as they're about to go into Jericho, here's what I want you to do. Don't touch the devoted things. Those things are mine. What does Achan do? He goes, I'm going to go ahead and touch the devoted things. I'm going to hide it for myself. Independence. I love Muhammad Ali. Anybody here have an extra four, five, six hours of their time this week to watch his funeral? Muhammad Ali's funeral was something else. At his funeral, of course, the thing they kept talking about is just, here is this man who just stood up to the government. And the government says, I want you to do this. We want to draft you. We want you to fight in the Vietnam War. We want you to serve in the Vietnam War. And what does Ali do in independence? He says, no. Now, hear me. I'm not putting a moral value on that. I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong in doing that. I'm not going to say he's necessarily right. It's just what endears us to Ali, what strikes a chord in our hearts and lives when it comes to Ali is he relates to that side of us that just longs for independence. Now, there's an appropriate place for independence, but when it comes to God and his word, independence is not a value. What God calls us to is, if I say it, then you must live not in independence, but in interdependence, bending your will in submission to mine. I've got a 15-year-old, 13-year-old, 11-year-old, and i got two teenagers in my house, man, and we've just, man, we're just having these conversations, and you know what these conversations are about. You know, my 15-year-old says, I can't wait to be out in this house. <laughs> and sometimes I want to say, I can't wait for you to be up out of here, too. We'll keep that between us, okay? But, but his whole mantra is, you know, he, he's bought into this lie that, that outside of this house, the world functions pretty much, I can do whatever I want to do. And what I'm trying to tell him and what I'm trying to teach him is in no way is that a scenario for a successful life. So, son, I'm trying to teach you responsibility here and getting you to do things in this house that you don't want to do because that's how the world really functions. So what are you going to do when you sit in college and you get in your class the first day of college and you look at the syllabus and you are sucking your teeth at the professor wondering, do they think that all you got to do for the next couple months is their class because you've got all this reading and all this writing? I said, if you want to pass that class and do well, you have to learn to bend your will to theirs. And what are you going to do when you get a job? 
And the boss has the nerve to tell you to be there at 9 o'clock. And you don't feel like being there. Independence is going to land you in the unemployment line. And independence doesn't work well in the kingdom of God either, friend. God's given us his syllabus, his word. And when we say, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to function independently in spite of God's word, we go the way of the prodigal. The younger brother is sitting on the throne of our hearts and lives. Thirdly and finally, we go the way of the prodigal when we function as if our father is dead, when we want life on our own terms, that's independence. But thirdly and finally, what the prodigal teaches us about the nature of sin is he lives for the moment. Give me my money so I can take my money, throw some parties, and hire some prostitutes. This is what he wants. He, he doesn't have the long-range view. I mean, if, if I'm this guy's financial planner, I mean, let me, let me just take off my Christian hat. I, I'm going... That ain't the way to go, bro. Like, you're going the way of Mike Tyson. You're going the way of so many athletes who are going to file for bankruptcy. But all he can see is, I want what I want, and I want it now. And he ends up destitute, bankrupt. Prodigals don't live with eternity in mind. They live with the moment in mind. Anybody, any of us heard the song Louie Louie? It's classic, smash. You know the guy who wrote it? Um, not long after he wrote it, he got desperate for $750. Sold the rights to the song Louie Louie for $750. It's still in rotation today. He sold the rights... He traded in future blessings for an immediate payday. Now, before we give this guy a hard time, let's look at the word. Hebrews 12 says this. Will you look at it with me? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's a man, had his birthright, gets swindled by his brother. Trades in long-term blessings for an immediate sensation. Oh, if ever there was a case of youth being a gift wasted on the young. This is what the prodigal does, friends. This is what we do. And I just want to be really transparent with you. I'm on the board of Biola University. Um, it's a lifetime appointment. Uh, reason why I agreed to that perk is um, um, my kids get to go there for free. 
So I'm putting Biola in their spirit. It's just, I'm brainwashing them. We're taking trips down to Biola. And right now, Biola is about 45 grand a year. I got three boys. So they each go there four years. So it's 190, 180 per kid times three, $540,000. Now, that $540,000 perk comes with the assumption uh, that I'm not going to do anything immoral. Now, let's just have real talk. What one night stand with a woman is worth $540,000? Women, I love you. I ain't hating on you. I ain't hating. I ain't hating. $540,000. We haven't even talked about their emotional well-being. We haven't even talked about the security of the home. See, friends, when you go the route of an affair... When you go the route of poor financial stewardship, some of us are paying off on stuff that we're just going, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have bought it in the first, I don't even know what I bought. He lives for the moment. It was around third and head for home. How do we deal with the prodigal in our own lives? Pastor Brian, I get it, I understand it, I see it, that when I function as if my father is dead, when I walk in independence, when I live for the moment, I don't end up in a good place, and he doesn't end up in a good place. In fact, if you just read through the text, here's what the great irony, this Jewish boy, after the last party's been had, after the last DJ's been paid, after the last prostitutes left the room, the text tells us that he began to be in need of famine hits. And this Jewish boy ends up selling himself to a Gentile pig farmer, and he's in the pig pen. Irony of ironies. Sin has its pleasure in the season, but there's more. Look at Proverbs thirteen fifteen with me. I love how the King James puts it. Good understanding giveth favor. But the way of transgressors is hard. Will you say that with me? The way of transgressors is hard. Say it again. The way of transgressors is hard. God puts before us two paths. The path of sin, it looks appealing. It has its pleasure for a season. It looks wonderful, but it's a mirage. Sin always overpromises and always, always, always underdelivers. It'll promise you the world, but it'll leave you empty. This is what happens with this guy. He just says, I'm going to go out, I'm going to party, I'm going to have a good time, life on my own terms, let me cash out. He has his pleasure. There's an old R&B cut. I think it was uh, sung by Shirley Murdoch. She's singing about adultery. It's a song called As We Lay. 
And the haunting chorus is, it's morning. It's going to end. Night doesn't last forever. Then what? So how do we deal with the prodigal? The text tells us in verse 17, but when he came to himself. I love this. In the original language, it literally means when he came to his senses. The way home for prodigals begins when we have a truth encounter with ourselves in which we say, this ain't working. It's only when we hit rock bottom. I used to work for one pastor in Charlotte, and I'll never forget this pastor. Uh, this mom comes to this pastor just grieving. She has a son who's addicted to drugs, and she's saying, can you help him? Can you help him? Can you help him? And I'll never forget what this pastor said to him. I thought it was so cold, so hard, um, but it turned out to be really true. This pastor says to his mother, mother's got a, a drug-addicted son. Can you help my son? Can you help my son? And the pastor just, in a very calm, loving way, says, has he hit rock bottom? The mother says, no. He goes, I can't help him. Hear me, hear me. John Townsend says, we only change where the pain of staying the same overrides the pain of changing. You missed that. John Townsend says, we only change when the pain of staying the same overrides the pain to change. Y'all know this. Some of y'all, y'all's philosophy of Dennis is you only go when it hurts. <laughs> Six-month checkup, what's that? So your mouth starts hurting and you start praying. You put a little gel on there, put a little Advil on there, you know, hoping something will change. And at some point it just throbs and throbs and throbs. You know what it means? You know it means a root canal. And there's going to be discomfort and some pain in it, but you figure, I'll take that pain over the pain I have of staying the same. What drives this young man home is he's in the pig pen and he realizes, hey, life here is far more painful and far more difficult than me just going ahead and swallowing some crow, confessing my faults, confessing my sin, and going home. I'd much rather go through that pain of repenting than the pain of staying where I'm at. And it's because of that, parents, I'm really convinced one of the most powerful prayers you and I could ever pray for our rebellious, wayward kids is that God would somehow, some way, in his grace, allow them to hit rock bottom. Some of us as parents... We are delaying the transformation in our kids because we keep rescuing. I will. Some of us as parents, we are delaying their process of transformation because we keep bailing them out. God is okay with letting us bump our heads from time to time. So here he is in the pig pen. He hits rock bottom. After rock bottom, what does he do? 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants, verse 17, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, father, I love this, underline it. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I I love it. The next step here is confession. How do we deal with the prodigal in us? We have a truth encounter with us where we go, this ain't working. This way of life isn't working for me. And then what's next? What's next is he goes, I'm going to just go and I'm going to confess that I've sinned against heaven. So I've sinned vertically. I've sinned against God. And I've also sinned horizontally. I violated you. Now, one of the prayers in the Bible that I have the most difficulty with And I'm just telling you, it's a hard prayer for me. Some of us can remember when David commits the sin of adultery, and then he confesses that sin in Psalm 51. He says something I don't like, and I'm still trying to come to terms with. In his prayer, he says, against you, speaking to God, and you only have I sinned. And every time I read that, I want to go, not true. You violated this woman. You violated her husband. Give the prodigal credit. He understands that he is not only shamed and sinned vertically against God, he's also wronged people. He's been disrespectful. So he says, I got to go home and tell my dad that. Now, let me just draw a parenthesis and go, if there's one thing our culture needs work on, it's work on how to apologize. Here's, here, is, here is the way not to apologize. I'm sorry if you took it as. I'm sorry if you heard it as. I'm sorry if I came across as. No, that's not an apology. An apology is I'm sorry, no disclaimers, and name something specific. That's it. Own it. Own it. I am sorry for be specific. I've wronged you. I didn't just come across a certain way. And don't, don't, I hate it every time an athlete says, I'm sorry you took it as, because that's not really me. No, no, no. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the Bible does not know this dichotomy of who you are in private versus who you are in public. No, who you were in public is really who you are in private. Own it own it so he confesses he says i'm gonna confess it i'm gonna own it and here's what i love here's what the bible says when the prodigal is alive and well in my heart when it's alive and well in your heart and we come to a place of confession i know some of us have heard this over and over again it was our go-to verse in vacation bible school and our memory verse competition but i want you to hear it with fresh ears if we confess our sins he is faithful and just not to remind us He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says, if you will just have the audacity to confess, I will have more audacity to forgive. And forgive. If you've ever read the stunning work by Desmond Tutu, No Future Without Forgiveness, he talks about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in apartheid-torn South Africa. 
these were commissions that you just set up uh, to bring about healing. And what you would do is at these commissions, you'd just come and say, here, here were my atrocities, and you would confess them, and there'd be a little search for truth, and then you'd receive forgiveness. Well, if you just read this book, it's story after story after story of stunning, inhumane, brutality, acts that were just meted out on people. And one group of white police officers just confessed, hey, we took this young boy, your son, and we barbecued him over a grill while he was alive. And as stunning as you are over that, what's even more stunning is to hear the boy's mother in sobs say, I forgive you. Or another white police officer comes and says, I took your 15-year-old son and I shot him and blew his brains out. And you hear the mother and father weeping and sobbing and saying, I forgive you. Well, if humanity can do that with one another on rare occasions, how much more so does God come to us when we come to him in confession and we confess our sins and God wows us over and over and over again saying, I forgive you and I forgive you and I forgive you. In fact, God even says, I knew you would do what you did before you did it and I still want to be with you. What is stunning is not our sin, it is God's grace and forgiveness. And so if you're a prodigal, if that younger brother's been living in you, and you've been functioning in independence, and you've been doing life on your own terms, God is not sitting here waiting to beat you up. He is sitting here waiting to give you grace upon grace and forgiveness upon forgiveness. Well, how does this story end? The younger brother says, here's what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll tell my dad, look, I've sinned against you. I've shamed you. I've sinned against heaven. So here, here's, here's, here's the deal. Um, could you just treat me as a hired hand? Now, this is important because there were two kinds of servants. There were regular servants. These servants lived on the estate. They lived on the property. And then there were hired hands. Uh, when you hear hired hands is what he says, treat me as a hired hand. Hear the term day laborer. Day laborers didn't live on the estate. Day laborers live down the street around the corner. So I want you to just hear what he's saying here. He's saying to himself, I've messed up so bad. I don't even deserve to be a servant. I don't deserve to be a son. I don't even deserve to be a servant. Treat me as a day laborer. He says, that's what I'll do. So he gets himself together. He's got his speech together. He walks down the road. We'll unpack this next week. And here his dad does the unthinkable. He runs towards him. The son launches into his speech, and the dad cuts him off. The son doesn't even get to the hired hand part. Dad cuts him off and says, nonsense. Bring the fattened calf. Throw a party. Bring the DJ. We're going to celebrate because my son was once lost and now he's found. He has gone from death to life. He's back. We call that grace. In one of these truth and reconciliation commissions to return to South Africa, a white police officer in a room probably a little bit smaller than this. A couple hundred people, two, three hundred people are there. True story, this white police officer says to uh, the judge, he says, during apartheid, I came to this woman's house. He points to a black woman there in Soweto. He says, I took her husband, me and my colleagues, and we beat and bound him with ropes. We doused him with gasoline. We lit a match and we set him on fire and made this woman watch as her husband screamed to his death. 
He said, a couple months later, me and my colleagues came back and we took her son, her only son. He was 18 at the time. We beat and bound him likewise with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, and made this woman, his mother, watch while her only son screamed his death. These are my atrocities. The judge says, ma'am, is there anything you want to say to this police officer? She steadied herself with tears streaming down her face. She says, young man, you have taken from me my only husband, the love of my life. You have taken from me my only child, the only one I've ever given birth to. And I still consider myself to be a young mother. So I've got a request, she says, with tears cascading down her face. She says, I'm a young mother. And I still have a lot of love to give. Would you be so kind, you and your colleagues, once a week to come to my house in Soweto. Would you let me cook for you? And when you come, would you bring your dirty laundry? Would you let me clean for you? Would you let me mother you? The crowd was hushed. After a few moments of awkward silence, a group of teenagers in the back of the room began to spontaneously sing a song that was penned by an ex-slave trader who likewise found grace named John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We have no category to place what this woman did we just simply call it grace. See, this son wants to be a day laborer. He wants to be treated on his own merits. He wants to do his day work, get his wages. And the dad says, no, our relationship is not a meritocracy. It's a father-son relationship. And there's grace. There's grace. God does not give you what you deserve. If he did, you and I would have checked out of here years ago. But each day, he wakes us up with a fresh batch called mercy and grace. Not to take advantage of it, not to think of him more lightly, but because he's good and he's kind and he doesn't treat us as workers, he treats us as sons and daughters. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But I guess if we did, it wouldn't be grace. If you're here today, and you would say that prodigal is alive and well in me, I just, I just see him. Maybe you would call yourself a Christian, but you would go, man, I'm just living independently. Man, I'm really living as if God were dead in some areas in my life. I'm just doing my own thing. I'm marching to the own beat of my drummer. I'm just living life on my own terms. 
God is sitting on the porch of his house, looking down the road, waiting for you to take the first step. And he wants to run to you in grace. And he wants to restore you. If you're saying, yeah, that younger brother, I just see him in some areas of my life. And I just need some prayer. This is a right now word for you. I want to invite you to come to the altar and receive his grace. Would you come? Would you come? If you see the prodigal alive in your heart and life right now, if you see areas in your life dominated by your own will, by your independence, would you come? Father, we pray not a single person would leave here today who's living life on their own terms without saying yes to you, without bending to you. Do it now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may